Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. I'm Alex Fitzpatrick and with me as always, Simona Falanga. We are introducing our newest installment of our latest mini-series titled Where in the World, which is, again, a testament to how good I am with titles. <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's let us kind of, you know, break out of our British shells and enter other parts of the world to take a look at the zoo archaeology there. And we've broken them up into continents for ease, because obviously we could spend probably the next decade if we wanted to go like country through country, which we, if you want us to do that, let us know. I can already picture an episode like in 50 years time. So this is episode 2036 of Archeo Animals. <laughs> Where in the world? But yeah, I feel like continents was probably the best. Obviously, we're still kind of generalizing here. But, you know, I feel like continents good because at least we can kind of break it down to regions. Although I guess this episode is a bit different because we will be tackling two continents. We will be looking at North and South America, which is where I'm from. So finally, it is my time to shine and not know anything about American zoo archaeology. <laughs> but yeah, so like we'll just look at sort of the most sort of prevalent like wild species that are native to the region. And um, then as always, uh, what we've decided is your favorite, the case studies. Yes, and no one can argue with me about that, because what I say is law, basically. Apparently. Anyway, yeah, well, just say yes. <laughs> anyway, we'll start off with the wild species, as we've been doing in the previous episodes. And we're going to start off with a species that we kind of talked about, because I just, I just need to keep talking about it, because it's so weird. It's the North American moose slash elk, also known as... Alches, alches. And as always, Simona will be forced to do the Latin because, come on, folks, it just sounds so much better when she says it. Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, because that's um, one of the weird things, because of course, in uh, the Italian for the North American moose, very much mirrors the Latin. So it's just alce. So there's not much confusion there. But of course, in British English, a moose... Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to get your mind around it. So what we're talking about in this episode is a moose, like an actual moose, like Rocky and Bullwinkle moose. Okay. It's not what the British seem to understand a moose is. They call it an elk. In North America, this is a moose. And the reason for that is because in North America, elks refer to a completely different species. Yeah, because that would be a Cervus canadensis, also known as the Wapiti. 
Yeah, which is originating from the similar word, Wapiti, from the Shawnee and Cree, which means white rump. So mind blown, really annoying. I wish we'd all just agree on one word, but hey, why not make it confusing? And to be honest, this is going to be a bit of a recurring theme in this episode in terms of just extremely confusing terminology. Although I guess it's... Without looking at it, now the the Wapiti looks a lot more like what what is similar to our red deer. Which is actually our North American moose. (laughs) I know, it's very confusing. But we're talking about moose. So picture in your head a moose, like the moose, a moose, Canadian moose. Because interestingly, moose are found throughout Canada as well as northern parts of the United States, such as upstate New York, uh, Michigan, places like that, I think. And interestingly, you can actually tell the difference between the North American moose and the Eurasian moose, because of course there is a Eurasian moose, not elk. Just, you know, whatever. So the North American moose have these really distinctive wide antlers and they've got these two lobes on each side, kind of like a butterfly, but their Eurasian cousins only have one lobe, which look closer to what you would expect from other elk. This is so confusing. Oh my gosh. I guess the the term would be, I guess, would it be a palmate antler? Yes. Because it's very similar sort of in the fallow deer in, in Europe, you get sort of like that. (laughs) Palmation. <laughs> but we're talking about yeah. moose. <laughs> yes, Not the elk. North American moose. <laughs> alchus, alchus, everyone. It is, it is so confusing. I actually, when we originally wrote these show notes, I wrote the wrong Latin down. So yeah, let's move past it because I can't, I can't even think about it longer than... Which one did you put out of interest? I put the elk. I, I'm not helping. I'm not helping. So yeah, let's let's move on to something a bit more easy to understand, like the American bison, which Latin name is? Um, well, bison, bison, or I guess bison, bison, really. Now, the problem is that it's also known as a buffalo. The problem, of course, is that buffalo is also used to refer to other types of bovine species, including the water buffalo, the African buffalo. But we're talking about bison, but they're also known as buffalo. <laughs> uh, but, but, but a bison is not a buffalo. No, and also j- just to make it more interesting, so I mean, there's uh, there's various subspecies of the American <laughs> bison. So you have the wood bison, so bison, bison, Athabasha, and then there's the plains bison, 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 bison. And if anyone remembers our gorilla, gorilla, gorilla from a previous episode, it carries on. Just to make sure, it is exactly a bison. It's a bison, bison, bison. This one, although the latter has been proposed to be actually two different subspecies within itself. So with the plains bison referring to the southern plains bison and also the northern plains bison, 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 montane. However, like this, this is still debated. So we're just like, we, we have mentioned this information and now we're going to move away from it. Now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the American bison, most likely known for being a significant part of the subsistence strategies of various indigenous peoples of the Great Plains regions of the United States, which includes tribes as the the Cheyenne, the Comanche, and the Pawnee, among many others. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think what a lot of people think of when you think of the American bison, uh, unless you're thinking of, of course, you know, the, the idealistic Southwest Plains, which bison are obviously very prevalent in, you know, 
images and things like that. Unfortunately, another thing they're very well known for is there are, you can probably find them if you just look up American bison photos. Uh, there are a lot of photos from, you know, the, I want to say 19th century-ish of uh, white American settlers standing on top of or posing near thousands and thousands of bison bones as part of the United States government's kind of settler colonialist violence against indigenous people. They obviously realized that bison were such a major part of not only the subsistence, but also the cultures of the Plains Native Americans. And they decided to systematically target and massacre the bison and just absolutely devastate the populations. So you have these like really gnarly, horrible photos of just, again, thousands of bison that have been killed. I mean, there's a lot of stories of, because obviously the U.S. Army would put out bounties. There were hunters that would have kills up to like, you know, 6,000 bison that they were able to kill. So it's it's really horrific. And uh, sadly, probably like one of the, the more well-known parts of the American bison history and the kind of zooarchaeology around it. That being said, I didn't want to end on that kind of note. So on a, a somewhat lighter note, bison have been historically crossbred with cattle, both on purpose by farmers as well as uh, accidentally, and we won't go into that, but they have been referred to, the, the crossbred species has been referred to as cattle Wasn't there like an article years ago, so one of those like feel-good articles about the sort of the scow that had run away and had somehow been accepted into a herd of bison? Yeah, I vaguely remember that, actually, now that you say that. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those... I. I'm obviously very tickled by crossbred species that have ridiculous names like a cattle. Although again, it's it's kind of playing into that buffalo misnomer where it's it's actually bison. So I guess it would be cat cat bison by cow. No, that just sounds like a cow bi- with two heads. Bite bite bital bissel. This is why we we don't name new things as zooarchaeologists. We just kind of pick up old stuff. <laughs> well, you know. Cattle, like it could also sound like a weird like hybrid between a buffalo and a cat. Oh boy. No. I just no. No. Move away from no. that. What do you, the, what do you the, mean, the North no? the North American beaver. Right. Oh, I want to think about how cute a cattle is. What are you talking about? Like a big cat? Like a really big cat. That's well, maybe that's actually that that's more of my misunderstanding what a crossbred cat and, and buffalo would be, because I'm imagining a, a really big cat. Yeah, I'm picturing a really big cat with equally big horns. So they would probably rule us all. Yeah, actually no, that'd still be cool. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> our, our new cattle overlords. We can only help. Anyway, yeah, let's 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 move on to the North American beaver. <laughs> His species name was actually more like Canadian beaver because it's a Castor canadensis. This is true, but to be fair, it's because, uh, you know, Canada is in North America. Yes. <laughs> Sorry is it, to is it? burst your bubble. <laughs> oh boy, um, we really went into a tizzy after we talked about all that naming conventions. And I, it's only going to get worse. Because like, North America is a big place and Canada is part of it, but does not represent the entirety of North America. 
Mm, yeah, I mean, we pretend that Canada is not part of it. Just kidding. Love you, Canadians. Kind of. I don't know. I've only been in Canada like twice. <laughs> Although native to North America, <laughs> the beaver has also been introduced to parts of Northern Europe as well as South America. So yeah, it's although it is native to North America, the beaver has also been introduced to parts of Northern Europe as well as South America. I believe it's been introduced to places like Finland, Scandinavia, parts of Europe like that. And again, to kind of continue this trend of extremely frustrating and difficult to really comprehend naming conventions and fake naming conventions. We are talking about true beavers here and not the fake beavers known as the mountain beaver, which isn't a beaver, really. Pretend a beaver. It's a rodent, like a, a like a non-beaver rodent. So don't know what that's about. Oh, the Diaplodontia rufa. Which is actually the only member of its genus. Yeah. And it pretends to be a beaver. Well, they're the yes. only living member of its genus, but clearly wants to be a beaver. Yeah, it's... I don't... There's a, and you know what? This, will, this isn't the only fake species that we'll be talking about in this episode. It's, this is an extremely cursed episode now that I'm thinking about it. It is very cute, though. But apparently its closest relative are actually squirrels. You know what? I can... Yeah, I can see that, to be honest. Yeah. Those incisors, they're very similar, aren't they? It looks like an angry quokka. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Do you want to explain what a quokka is to the listening audience? Oh, the quokka is a, a marsupial, I think, found in parts of Australia that I believe a few years ago has been voted the happiest animal on the planet. Not because it is particularly happy, but it just looks happy because I think the, the facial expression, it just looks like they're constantly smiling. Hmm, I was going to say, like, how do you even measure that? But I mean, I they, guess... they ask them, of course. With a little mic. <sighs> Said, hello, Mr. Quokka, but are you happy? I mean, that could be an episode. If you guys want to hear us interview animals with a small bike, let us know. We'll do it. So, yeah, so apparently the distribution along some of the smaller islands off the coast of Western Australia is where oh, they're found. okay. So there you go. But we're not talking about Australia. Not yet, anyway. No, not yet. So back to the pretender beaver of North America, Aplodontia rufa. Well, we're not even talking about them. We're talking about the actual North American beaver, aren't we? So beavers were actually historically used by many indigenous peoples for a variety of reasons, but mainly for meat, fur, and actually they used their massive incisors as well, which, as you can understand, were very useful as tools. I mean, look at those things. They are basically natural tools for beavers. So unsurprisingly, they were often used by indigenous people as well to kind of create various tools. And their fur would ultimately remain extremely important for, unfortunately, the later European colonial settlers as they would build their trade in the north and set up outposts specifically for beaver trade. So, eh. Is this a trend? Yeah, it might be a trend. There's a couple trends going on here. But uh, yeah, it's actually really interesting in that I kind of never really thought about beaver being used for meat, but obviously a lot of the zooarchaeological evidence that we find for beaver, you do see those very indicative kind of butchery marks on limbs and uh, things like that, which is 
Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, that's been kind of the nice thing about this series we've been doing is not only are we talking a lot about different regions, but also different species and kind of learning new ways that these species were kind of important. Although the next one, I feel like kind of new already because it's it's the jaguar. Jaguar is how you say it in the UK, right? Jaguar. 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 That's how we I would say it. Panthera onca. Yes. So jaguars are the only member of the Panthera genus to be native to the Americas. And so it's basically the largest cat on both continents. And, you know, the jaguar is probably one of the most important symbolic animals for the cultures, particularly in uh, South America. Many of the Mesoamerican cultures would use depictions of jaguars, not only in their religions, as obviously there were many jaguar-based gods, but they also use the animal as a symbol of power. And jaguars are kind of really cool because they would either be represented very naturalistically as, you know, a jaguar on four limbs or as these hybrid creatures with humanistic features like the Olmec culture would often depict what is referred to commonly as were jaguars, which were these like warriors that were also jaguars. And they're unsurprisingly very important to ritual. So you often find their remains buried as ritual deposits in places such as Teotihuacan, alongside other grave goods such as obsidian and green stone. So they're pretty cool, to be honest. And there's were jaguars, which is just awesome. But yeah, luckily we were able to finish this segment without any really frustrating naming conventions for the jaguar. So thank you to the jaguar for that. That being said, when we enter our next segment after the break, we may hit some more confusion. It's about llamas and alpacas, folks. Strap in. Oh, oh, again. (laughs) Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. And this episode, we're looking at the zooarchaeology of the Americas, so North and South America. And in this segment, we'll be going from the wild species to the domesticates that are normally found in this region. And unfortunately, that means we are going to have to talk about the llamas and the alpacas, which is a bit confusing sometimes. I mean, for anyone who's interested, though, we do have like early on in our catalogue, we do have an episode that's entirely devoted to South American camelids. I, I think we talked a bit about how they're different, but I don't know if we got into like the nitty gritty about the domestication. 
Well, the, they were probably domesticated in several locations at several different points in time. Oh, they were. <laughs> but um, anyway, well, the good news is that we are moving because while uh, we are covering both North and South America, it has been so far fairly North American oriented, with the exception of the jaguar. So with a few species, we're, we're starting to slowly move south. Yeah. So we'll start with the llama. Well, llama glama. Llama glama, which is just a delightful Latin name. So llamas are, as we've kind of just said, South American domesticated camelids. They were used for meats and for their wool, as well as a pack animal across many different cultures and civilizations and are still used like that today, to be completely honest. And I I believe that they were very vital to a lot of Mesoamerican and pre-Columbian trade routes because of their ability to be beasts of burden and pack animals. So they're extremely important to the development of a lot of these civilizations in South America. And they were likely domesticated from a wild species of camelid known as the guanaco. Lama guanico. Yes. Which occurred probably around 6,500 years ago. So like 6,000, 7,000 years ago, give or take. And like I said, they were used by the Inca as beasts of burden, and obviously that meant that llama herding was actually very common among the Incan people and very, very important to their everyday life. And given this importance, it's probably not surprising that llama remains have been found in many human burials. So, you know, as kind of grave goods buried alongside humans, it kind of varies because it's not just in the Incan Empire, but also in many pre-Incan civilizations as well, such as the Moche, where llamas were likely offerings to the dead and thus buried with them. Similar but different from the llama (laughs) is the alpaca, so llama pacos, which uh, they're often confused with llamas because, well, they do kind of look alike, but they're smaller. And actually, I believe their wool is a little bit sort of finer or softer yeah so actually slight digression i believe the two are and more, more than likely were in the past often hybridized so you could get the size of a llama but the wool quality of an alpaca but did they have a cute hybrid name <laughs> lalpaca <laughs> a llama <laughs> The puns are endless. But uh, the alpacas, uh, as you may have suspected, are also South American domesticated camelids, but they are likely domesticated from the vicuña. So vicuña, vicuña, which is also another type of wild camelid. Yeah, so basically you have two wild camelids. You have the vicuña and you have the guanaco. And then they were domesticated, again, roughly around the same time, uh, both alpacas and llamas were both domesticated probably around 6,500 years ago. And of course, they create two other domesticated camelids that are are different from each other. I believe the vicuña is also similar to how the alpaca is smaller than the llama. The vicuña is smaller than the guanaco. And uh, again, much like the llama, like unsurprisingly, alpacas were important for their wool 
but also just as symbolically and ritually important to pre-Columbian cultures such as Damas. So an example of this has been found at the Chiribaya culture site of El Yaral, where they found naturally mummified alpaca and llamas buried in the house foundations. So likely, you know, <laughs> sacrifices at some point. Which, to be fair, is a trend that you see pretty much all over. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, it's really interesting that that seems to be... Because, I mean, you know, I'm always wary about doing kind of cross-cultural, you know, comparisons. Because obviously, people, a lot of people who do do that have very problematic beliefs in, say, ancient aliens and things like oh, that. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, to to kind of go on a bit of a tangent. Um, I really got to experience this when I went to American Stonehenge, which I don't know if you know about American Stonehenge. Uh, do, do, do I want to? It's in where is it? Uh, New Hampshire, I think. It's it's on the East Coast, and it, it it's it's referred to as American Stonehenge, and a lot of the kind of evidence is that there's oh there's phoenician carvings and it's so similar to stonehenge in britain that it has to have been made by the same people now i I do want to say that as a an actual archaeologist who went to american stonehenge it absolutely looks like 18th century shelters built by with rocks like you know how you find in places like in europe (laughs) like you, you know, like a shelter you'd make for like livestock, kind of. That's that's what right. it looked like. But you know, American Stonehenge, whatever. And so I, <laughs> it was just very funny to like see all the comparative stuff of like, oh, it's just like this place here. So I'm very worried about doing that. But okay, so I, I do, it is it is impossible to fathom that different cultures can come up with similar concepts completely independently of each other. Oh no, absolutely not. But like that that is the the actual good and fun part of that isn't it is kind of being yeah, like i think more well, the way i see it is just like it's the human mind yeah it's interesting because i mean i assume this is what you were going to bring up originally but you know we, we and i think we have talked about foundation null deposits before right yeah because of course they, they're common across many cultures but then again you know the evidence that we find might be similar but the motives may be wildly different. For sure. And some of them we'll never know about. Yeah. So it's interesting to see, like, you know, the human mind is sort of like this sort of having similar concepts, but of course they're also different. Yeah, like, especially reading about the fact that these were naturally mummified alpaca and llamas that were buried underneath the house foundations. Now, obviously, speaking as someone who's done a lot of prehistoric British and Scottish archaeology we find loads of kind of these house foundation deposits up in the orkneys we have lots of kind of pictish buildings where if we we pulled up the flooring and you could find like a whole cow (laughs) you know like all these kind of animals that were placed underneath the, the foundations but the fact that they mentioned that these alpaca and llamas were mummified immediately made me think of there's a site in Scotland called Cladhalla. Uh, I think it's Cladhalla. That's the one I'm, I'm talking about. I, a lot of these were in my PhD lit review, so kind of all smushed into one. But they had kind of a similar thing where there were uh, kind of these foundational deposits, but and they were human remains 
they were mummified or preserved in some way. I think the original theory was that they might have been placed in the bog and then reburied, uh, not reburied, but excavated back out and then placed underneath the foundation. But they were also, it was like a body that was kind of made out of different individuals. It was very interesting, but it's the, kind of the, interesting. The motivations, like I, I wish we had a, the, so some time travel, just like, just <laughs> why? Very cool. going to say, but like, is there a mention, so like on, um, at El Yaral, like, do we know sort of whether the mummification was intentional and then placed, or is this something with a taphonomy, sort of with the particular environment? Because I know parts of South America, you know, they lend themselves better to natural mummification than, say, Britain. Yeah, I mean, you see a lot of pre-Columbian mummies, don't you? And I, I believe that it is specifically naturally mummified in that it doesn't seem like there's any human motivation towards it. But the problem is obviously, you know, you could easily argue, oh, they could have somehow died underneath the house foundation. You know what I mean? So it's a bit... I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if there were any other, I assume there must be other kind of artifactual associated with the site to kind of help with that interpretation, but still very interesting. And it was just something I kind of wanted to, to note because, you know, we, we talk about domestication. Sometimes we don't talk about the crossover between domestication and ritual, although that's a lie. We talk about it all the time, don't we? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's part of the bingo. If we mention the Romans, if we mention ritual... But here's one that's definitely not part of a bingo, because I don't think we ever mentioned the species before. It's a domestic turkey. Now, take a shot of that, <laughs> that word. Meleagris gallopavo domesticus. Oh, why do I ever doubt you? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think we may have briefly talked about the turkey when we did our episode on holiday meals. Maybe? Oh, yes, no, we would have done. Yeah, but it's something, again, because we tend to be fairly British-centric. The turkey is something that doesn't come up until sort of the post-medieval period here. Yeah, and I definitely don't think we've talked about the domestication of the turkey, which obviously was domesticated from the wild turkey of Mexico. Meleagris gallopavo gallopavo. <laughs> of course. And of course, the turkey would eventually make its way to Europe via the Spanish colonizers who would ship them back as well as spread throughout the Americas. Because obviously turkey is just pretty much everywhere now, similar to the chicken. But yeah. Do you think they were part of someone's fowl collection? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Although (laughs) the main domestication event was likely in Mesoamerica around 2000 years ago, there may have been a second domestication event at some point, so approximately a thousand years ago in what is now the the southwest of the United States. Yeah. So again, that's probably indicative of how it, it really spread around the Americas. And of course, because we are, you know, England centric, we do need to give a shout out to the man who did introduce the turkey to England during the 16th century. His name is William Strickland. So thank him for your Christmas dinner if you're in England, I guess. Yeah, uh, apparently he is obviously so noted for this that on his family crest, there's a there's a turkey. I mean, why, why wouldn't there be? Yeah, so I guess you might as well own it. I guess they were all the range at the time. So were pineapples. Around that time period, you see like pineapple sculptures like coming up left, right and centre in England. It's like, <gasps> pineapples! <laughs> Yeah, and uh, obviously, you know, we really haven't talked about turkey, but I don't know about you, if you really come across turkey very often, but I've always found it kind of hard to identify against chicken bones sometimes. No, because again, like, uh, 
Turkey if you yeah, don't come to find course. them for the post medieval period so they don't come up like too often. But I think the that giveaway is the massive size difference. So if it's something that's galliform, but it's yeah. huge, okay, Turkey. And then it's like, oh, yeah. that's just messed up my dating. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the issue is also, I feel like, domestic foul, a lot of it tends to look very similar sometimes, which is why, you know, I hate to admit it, but sometimes you just got to write domestic foul as the identification and hope for the best. There's just the thing with birds in general, because I mean, like, domestic foul, okay, like, between various species, it can be a little bit tricky, but you can tell apart, so like, okay, this is galliform. Yeah, yeah. But then everything sure. else, there are so many different species of wild birds and all like itty bitty, like tiny bones <laughs> that unless you have like all of the reference material, you'll never like or something robin sized. But like there's a million birds that are robin sized. So it's like good yeah. luck. And and yeah, hats off to who the, all those who specialize in bird bones. You are heroes. Yeah. Absolute heroes too. As you know, the only thing that's only slightly worse than fish are birds, as everyone knows. So, you know, not much we can do about that. Anyway, you know, turkeys were obviously used for meat, but they were actually also used for their feathers and bones. And something that I actually had no idea about, and this is extremely cool, is that we have kind of some written texts about Aztec use of turkeys. So there was a Franciscan monk, Bernardino de Sahagun, who wrote probably one of the earliest kind of ethnographic studies uh, known as the Florentine Codex. And he basically did these ethnographic studies of the Aztecs during the 16th century. And I believe they even had some of, some of the Aztec people do some of the illustrations, which is so cool. And that's how we actually know how turkey was used in Aztec cuisine. It was mainly roasted or boiled. It was sometimes served in a stew with corn or sometimes with a, a mole sauce. And it was also often used as a tamale filling. So sounds good. And our final species that we'll be talking about is sadly an extinct species. It is the Fuegian dog, also known as the Yagen dog. And it is a now extinct domesticated canid. Unlike other domesticated dogs, of course, we've talked about at length, I feel like on this, ep uh, not on this episode, but in previous episodes, we've talked about domesticated dogs and they were mostly domesticated from the gray wolf. Canis lupus. Of course, which we did. Oh, I didn't, I just realized, I don't think I gave you a chance to say the Latin word for the, the Fuegian dog. Licalopex culpeus. Thank you. I'm so sorry for that. Oh, no, yeah, you're quite all right. Well, to be fair, it's also the, the same name for what the Fuegian dog was likely domesticated from, which is the culpeo, which is also... Oh, Licaloplex culpeos. <laughs> okay, like so how was, it, it. Uh, how was it domesticated? So if it wasn't, if it didn't speciate? I think it may have speciated and they just because it was an extinct species and we actually don't really have that much information about it they may not have given it a specific or i must have miswrote this which is probably the more likely thing or i guess so maybe uh, if they were just very tame but like the not quite domesticate you know like the so the reindeer like, yeah, is it domesticate, it's funny. but not really like 
it's funny because we we don't know that much. There there are some taxidermied and obviously some remains. So that has been kind of semi recently. There's been a lot of genetics work done on it to kind of look at where it mostly domesticated from. I think this is kind of recent. This that the copeo has been noted as where it domesticated from, and the copeo is a species of South American fox. Which, okay, to get back to this kind of confusing stuff, wasn't actually a fox or a a true fox, like the true beaver. It was more closely related to wolves and jackals. Everything is so confusing in the Americas. But yeah, so we don't actually have that much like ethnographic evidence as to how the Fuegian dog was really used or or why they were domesticated. They may have been used to uh, domesticated to hunt otters. And we don't even really know the exact exact reasons for their extermination other than they may have been too dangerous around livestock but i just thought it was really interesting because you know you don't really get to talk about these extinct domesticated canids which there are a few species so yeah they're very cute because i've noticed like because the wild counterpart is alive and well yeah it's very it's very strange isn't it it's strange because it's kind of it's fox-sized but it's got like the coloring like uh, it's it's very confusing it's it's a it's a very, it's a very cute papa. It, it does have a bit of a foxy face. Yeah, it's theme of the episode. Everything is very confusing to me. It truly like looks like a cross between sort of a dog, like a generic dog, and a red fox. Mm. Yeah, it's like I said, very confusing. The zoo archaeology, the Americas. So I think as we kind of figure out what this is, we will take a break and come back for the case studies. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. We are talking about the zoo archaeology of the Americas, so North and South America. And we are now at, again, I always say it, no one cares. I'll keep saying it because, I don't know, maybe maybe it's like I'm going to wish it into existence that people love this part of the episode. But I guess it's it's a good part of the episode. I don't know. It's the case studies. No. Maybe it's our favorite part and we're just projecting <laughs> Everyone else we might does. be projecting, but it's it is fun. I mean, I feel like the case studies are good. And they're very important. It helps people understand in action what we're talking about. Hopefully, <laughs> so we're going to start with the zoo archaeology of Jamestown, which is located in the United States. So Jamestown was the first permanent English settlement in North America. It was established in 1607 briefly abandoned in 1610 
and then permanently settled by the English colonizers afterwards. So Jamestown is located in what is now the state of Virginia, which is located on Senecomaco land. Now, Jamestown is actually a <laughs> kind of a, um, I don't know what, the, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent would be in England, because I, I assume they must have like, like reenactment type places, kind of. Well, like specific places where people do reenactment? Yeah, like, so Jamestown's a very, obviously, it's a very big touristy place. I've definitely gone there at least twice in grade school because I lived in New York, which isn't that far from Virginia. You know, it was a couple hour drive. But they have, it, it is kind of interesting. Obviously, they've, they've got kind of recreations of a lot of the buildings. You can go there. The people who work there are often in character recreating life in Jamestown. Well, I guess you have sort of uh, up north, is it like uh, Beads World and uh, the Beamish? Hmm. Just sort of much later. Um, well, not, not Beads World, obviously. Yeah, because I was trying to think of, because obviously we have a lot of reinterpretation sites and places that are made to kind of look like what they, you know, obviously we talked a lot about like Butzer Farm and places like that. But I was trying to think of if there's places where they actually have people like in character as ye old timey thing. And then I was thinking, is that a very American thing or what? Yeah, because I'm not sure if they do that, but like I'm thinking like the the one thing, yes, the Beamish is this open air museum in the northeast of England. So so that tells sort of the story of daily life in northeast England. So in the 19th, like slash 20th century. Okay. Yeah. So when you go to Jamestown, you, like I said, there's lots of people, they're all dressed up. They're doing like farming. There's obviously someone doing blacksmithery, things like that. Uh, It's very, very common. I feel like around a lot of the Northeast states, because obviously that's where a lot of the, the original colonies were. So places like that and Williamsburg. Yeah. Very, it's a very American thing, and apparently the only thing that I can remember from ever going to Jamestown was buying sticks of honey and eating them. So, really made an impression on an early archaeologist. Anyway, what we really want to talk about though is the zoo archaeology of Jamestown, and it's it's actually really interesting. So, you know, in our, our previous episodes that we've done for this mini series, we've talked a lot about sites that. You know, either they were either kind of sites that were massive settlement places where you had a loads of different kind of explorations as to what the diet was, where they were getting it, trade and stuff like that. And then I guess the other kind of examples that we've been looking at have been trade ports, because obviously it's really interesting to see the zoo archaeology of places where things were coming and going, you know, and being traded. And Jamestown is kind of interesting because obviously it is a colony, so you already have that kind of component to it, but it's the first permanent one. Uh, so it's a very new colony and it's uh, settlers who are trying to survive in a very new colonized territory. So it was unsurprisingly rough to say the least. And it's through the kind of zoo archaeological analysis that we've been able to better understand what is known as the starving times, which unsurprisingly refers to a period of starvation during the winter of 1609 to about 1610. And it was 
so rough that basically the population of the colony reduced from 500 people to about 61. So, yeah, when they're not really kidding when they say starving times. So there's been a lot of archaeological analysis looking at kind of deposits dating to the period before the starving times and then deposits that are associated with the starving times. And it's so clear the difference. So from pre-starving times to like 1607 to 1608, you start to see mostly, you know, butchered deer, fish, bird bones. I mean, a lot of this is pre-them bringing over a lot of the kind of animals that would eventually be, you know, more domesticated on these settlements. So a lot of them are, you know, really focused on deer, fish, and bird that are more native. But then as you go to the starving times during 1609 to 1610, the composition of the archaeological record becomes completely different. It's squirrel, rat, snake, dog, and horse. And, you know, obviously, if you saw that, you'd be like, oh, maybe that's wild deposits, but they were all butchered. So clearly they were just eating anything they could get. And also, especially things like horse, you'd leave that as a last resort because they are quite valuable. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think horse is probably the the real smoking gun there because, you know, that is extremely last case. And again, you know, we are the population reduced so drastically. So it was real dire times. But it it is interesting because I think we have talked previously as well about, you know, how zooarchaeologically you can see these kind of shifts in species and how you can interpret things like famine from them. I mean, I think in our previous episode, we kind of talked about how you can see the difference between early settlements when they would eat, I think it was mostly like cattle and things like that. But as they ran out of space, they had to turn to, oh no, it was the opposite. They originally ate something like sheep. And then as they ran out of space, they turned to imported cattle. So... It's really interesting, I feel like. Yeah, and I guess also like dog is a, like fairly like usually a red flag as well because also dogs do tend to be quite useful and used for a variety of jobs. So, and is there any evidence of what may have brought that on? Because you know they've been there sort of previously. Was it a particularly harsh winter? Do, do, do we know? Yeah, it was just it was a harsh winter, and obviously, and I think this is a very recurring theme in a lot of the early settlements in North America by by colonizers is that they just weren't prepared. There was obviously before Jamestown, there was the Roanoke colony, which is very infamous because it basically vanished. No one really knows what happened to the colonists there. There was a, obviously a complete failure. Uh, Jamestown, I think, came afterwards. But, you know, you have there's a lot of other stories and you know, obviously even like Plymouth is very similar that they just, the winters were harsh. They weren't really ready for that. And they just, because they would also like have to wait ages for the rest of their supplies to come through. You basically, a lot of these colonies just completely like struggled in that first year or so, especially during the winter. And then hey. we'll be, yeah, we'll be moving to South America. <laughs> Yes. We'll be looking at the zoo archaeology of Machu Picchu in Peru. So Machu Picchu is the site of a 15th century Incan citadel, which is located in southern Peru. Um, 
It has been recently proposed that the site was originally made to be an estate for the Incan emperor um, Pachacuti and was likely inhabited between 1420 and 1532. Now, they've carried out some isotopic analysis sort of on the remains found at Machu Picchu. Uh, Now, isotopic analysis is something that archaeologists do that informs, I guess, on the diet of... um, Mm. So like uh, past populations, but also through that you're able to pinpoint sort of the origin or like whether there's any evidence of migration. Normally, I believe it's teeth that you look at because our bones sort of remodel sort of roughly sort of every 10 years. So normally Mm -hmm. when you look at the bones, anything they extract from the bones will tend to reflect anything from the last 10 years of your life while the teeth will provide inference on, you know, the time when they actually formed. So generally, that'll be childhood. Yeah. So especially when you're doing human bones, technically, as long as you have usable collagen. So I have done isotopic analysis on arguably the worst thing you could do it on, which is fish bones. Uh, It was, let me tell you, it was a massive struggle, as you can imagine, to get collagen out of fish vertebra. But by God, I did it. (laughs) it kind of explains my uh, hatred towards fish i think but yeah so basically you for humans you would definitely want to use teeth isotope analysis is actually extremely powerful in terms of archaeological sciences you can as simona said you can look at diet diet is like the big one but also you can look at migration and things like that and it is extremely useful and obviously it's become even more important uh, as genetic studies and uh, ancient DNA have become more usable and more popular because obviously it helps kind of supplement that information. For diet mainly, I guess what you'll be looking at is the nitrogen values, if I'm correct. So like, of course, the nitrogen, I guess the more uh, meat-based your diet is, the higher sort of your nitrogen levels will be. With actually, if you have a marine diet, that will have the highest amount of nitrogen of all. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, yeah. So you basically have nitrogen and and you have carbon. So you're kind of looking at the way those are balanced. And as you say, if you have a very very high nitrogen values, then you definitely have what is more of a marine diet. So like when I was looking at fish which sounds, again, ridiculous to be like, why would you look at fish? You, you know what they're eating. It was to compare the, the nitrogen values of fish with the human remains that we had from the site that we were working on to look at whether or not they were using eating a, a marine diet. So obviously that can be extremely valuable. And again, that helps with the way we understand migration, because obviously if you have remains of a person that's pretty landlocked, but you can see at some point they had a diet high in marine resources, you might be able to figure out, hey, maybe they moved. And that was actually the case in Machu Picchu. Yeah. And I guess it'll probably be the case for myself when they'll eventually study me (laughs) in a few hundred years time as I come from a, a place that has a very high, like a very marine rich diet and then i moved somewhere that's landlocked there you go something say this and that is very much the case for machu picchu as well because the isotopic analysis has um shown that actually a lot of the inhabitants were migrants from elsewhere in peru likely from coastal regions because uh, the the sort of the isotopic analysis shown that many had diets that were previously very high in marine resources 
Yeah. And then as they move to Machu Picchu, you can see where actually grains and, and food like corn were likely a much more prominent source of subsistence. And I believe that corn is very high in uh, carbon. Uh, I, I, I vaguely remember this from my master's degree, but I, there you can actually kind of map out certain types of food and where they would kind of score isotopically. And that obviously helps in kind of figuring out diet that way. Yeah, I think there's very- a whole map. So like you have a map of various sort of world regions and each sort of region have, have their own sort of values Yeah, that you it's can really sort of confront cool. it against. Oh, yeah, so they're very um, previously a very high marine diet, which of course, you know, shifted then in Machu Picchu. And unsurprisingly, uh, a lot of the fauna remains found at the site were actually alpacas and llamas. Yeah, which, you know, as we, we already talked about. But again, I figured it's a great time to talk about ritual, baby. Yes, uh, as a zoological analysis uh, has also been used to examine sort of ritualistic feast deposits from Machu Picchu, which may have been used as part of an ancestor feast rite or used as part of ancestor worship and may have included the offerings of both food and sacrifices. So like aside from your llamas and uh, alpacas, uh, some of the fauna remains included dog, camelids, camelids, camelids. Which are the two? How do you, is it camelids or camelids? I always say camelids, but it might be camelids. I don't know. Okay. Camelids, uh, deer and guinea pigs. Please, please. Yes. Uh, put, yeah. <laughs> Which are, for people who don't know, guinea pigs were often eaten in these areas. Yeah, so, don't, don't, don't tell your kids. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't tell your kids. But it's very, very common. And yeah, so... The dogs were often found unbutchered, and thus they were probably the sacrifices. And then it's probably implied that the offered feast would include llamas and alpacas and all other camelids and deer and the guinea pigs. And like I said, they're all kind of noted to be part of the subsistence of the area. And it's also just interesting to think of Andean uh, ancestor worship, which I didn't know was actually kind of a uh, cultural part of that region. As um, again, because we were talking about, you know, how we have these similarities and cultures around the world, Chinese culture and still part of Chinese culture is obviously ancestor worship and kind of ancestor feasting. We're very big on anytime there's an ancestral kind of holiday, like tomb sweeping day, you got to go to uh, your ancestor's grave or tomb and you, you lay out a nice meal. I've never really done it, but I've kind of started doing it now because it feels right. But interesting. Yeah, I think similarly, um, we only have a Day of the Dead, November 2nd. Oh, yeah, We we don't particularly celebrate per se, but it's very much that you'll go to the cemetery, so see your ancestors, pay your respects. But I I think there might be traditional foods in there, but I can't. can't. Yeah, I mean, we don't don't sacrifice. No, 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 no. Do sacrifice good food sometimes, but you do it for the ancestors. What can I say? <laughs> but yeah, and I think that brings us to the end of the zooarchaeology of the Americas, which has been a very confusing journey as to um, maybe we should all get better naming conventions, huh, folks? Just putting it out there. <laughs> but as always, you know, you should tell your friends about the podcast. You should 
subscribe to our podcast. Although I've only just realized that it's follow now on like iTunes. So follow and or subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review. We are on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. You can follow us and let us know what do you want us to talk about. We love taking listener requests. Obviously, we're doing this miniseries, but hey, after that, who knows what we're doing? Actually, we do know what we're doing because we're very well organized, but you don't know. So that's yeah. a surprise. <laughs> you can Anything always else? take the time for a listener's request. Yes, we can. And hey, maybe if you go to the Archaeology Podcast Network and you become a member there, you might find some bonus apps or bonus material from us or all the other podcasts that are available on the network. So as always, I guess, I've been Alex Fitzpatrick. And Simona Falanga. And yeah, we'll see you next time, folks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.